Welcome to another Down the Hatch podcast. As we had mentioned before, we were doing a swallowing neurophysiology series, but we're taking a break. And you know, sometimes we like to go off topic and talk about things relative to the field of communication sciences and sciences and disorders and not just swallowing. And this is one of those topics that's happening because people asked for it. A couple of months back, we had a topic called SLP So White. We had a part one and we had a part two. And when we posted those, we got a lot of people saying, what about SLP So fill in the blank, so female, so binary, so ableist, etc." And so we thought, hey, let's follow up with the bigger demand, which was a podcast called SLP So Female. So that's the topic of today's podcast. Now, What I'm going to do is I'm going to ask our four guests to introduce themselves. And as you already know, Alicia, you are not a guest. She's right now giving me what about me look right now. And every time I ask you to introduce yourself, you're like, y'all know you by now. So y'all know her by now. I'm feeling really needy today, okay? (laughs) Okay, so y'all heard that. White female, right? Right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so. trying to represent. Yeah, you got to represent. Okay, I know, right? I started dirty really early. Okay, Anthony, introduce yourself, please. Thank you. So my name is Anthony Avitable. I am a speech therapist um, working in Temecula Valley Unified School District. That's in Southern California, just above San Diego. Um, went to uh, Cal State San Marcos, California State San Marcos, for my graduate studies, and I uh, went to San Diego State for my undergraduate degree, and I just became interested in this topic actually when I was in grad school and um, I ended up presenting at Kasha on this topic and and also about cultural diversity as well. Um, And so I'm just really happy to be here. So thank you. Sure. Anthony actually sent me a a cold call sort of email uh, or message on Facebook saying, hey, if you guys end up doing SLP So Female, I'd love to be involved. So I'm happy that you're able to join us. Ryan, introduce yourself. I'm, I'm Ryan Bransky. I'm the uh, vice chair for research in rehab medicine at the NYU Grossman School of Medicine. I have an appointment in otolaryngology, head and neck surgery, and in communicative disorders. Um, I did my undergraduate and graduate school at the University of Florida and then got a PhD at the University of Pittsburgh um, and have been on the kind of academic track for about 15 years now. And you were born and raised in Gainesville, Florida, which is where I live now, eh? I was I was actually born in Wisconsin, but raised. My parents moved to Gainesville when I was uh, three to go to. They both went to school at the University of Florida. Ah. So, yes. Which city? My home. Which city in Wisconsin? Uh, in? Nina. The claim to fame for Nina is all the manhole covers, <laughs> basically everywhere, are made at the Nina Foundry. So if you're like even in Gainesville. You walk around and see the manhole covers, they all say Nina Foundry on it. Okay, and really should that be person hole given our topic and not manhole? I'm just saying. <laughs> okay, one. Dan, you're a returning guest. Introduce yourself. Good to be back. I'm Dan Weinstein. I am chief of audiology and speech pathology at a medical center in Philadelphia. And um, I don't know if you know this, but during a short lived stint as both a full time employee, I was also in a PhD program, and I wrote a paper about gender disparities in speech language pathology. So this is a topic, yep, yep. So this is a topic that's interesting to me, having worked or been on staff at several different hospitals and always being the only male speech pathologist. 
I did not know that. So you will have some fruitful discussion for us. And Rick, talk about it, Rick. Uh, my name is Rick McAdoo. I'm a vice president and co-founder of a company called Amp Care. Um, we do neuromuscular electrical stimulation rehab uh, technology for swallowing. Uh, work with um, physical therapy, uh, physical therapist, and another speech language pathologist. I did my undergraduate and graduate both um, at Texas Christian University (TCU). Uh, undergraduate in '89 and finished up my master's in '90. Uh, been all of my career in the adult neurogenic hospital settings uh, outside of now on the entrepreneurial side. So now that we have all of that established, I would also like to point out that the only brown person that you're hearing is me. And that is because if you think that males are unicorns, black males are really, really, really the unicorns. Now, I know quite a few in our field. However, none of them were able to join us. So we don't have that immediate perspective. So I want to put that out there. Also, to my knowledge, unless anyone would like to connect, uh, correct me, I assume that most people here uh, consider themselves to be cisgendered, meaning that they identify their gender with their birth sex. But the point is, we don't have that, we may not have that perspective as strongly voiced here. Um, and so it seems to be a very, a very binary conversation, but it doesn't mean we can't discuss those, but we don't necessarily have uh, a representative who will be talking about those things. But that's why we would want to do a SLP so binary uh, discussion as well, or SLP so straight, which we can also have, we can have all kinds of discussions. It's whatever people want. All right. Now that I have those disclaimers uh, in here, mm -hmm. I want to say why we're talking about this. The first thing that prompted me to even be interested in this topic was that a few years ago, I was it at ASHA reviewing grants or whatever it was. And I noticed that 50% of the people who received honors happened to be males. And I thought, wow, this must be a great year for males in speech pathology because 50% of them are males and only 4% comprise our whole field. So later on, I was talking to somebody who uh, works at ASHA and they said, oh no, honey, this is the first year that women achieved parity meaning up until now, it's been 62% of the honors, which is the highest award that ASHA gives to anybody, were given to males. And I thought that is so striking. So um, me and a couple of other uh, folks wrote a paper called How Gender, How Gender Stereotypes May Limit Female Faculty Advancement in Communication Science and Dis Sciences and Disorders. And we'll put the link to that podcast and that paper up so you can see it. Secondarily, as I mentioned before, we then did another podcast on SLP So White, and we had a lot of interesting discussion, a lot of people giving us the what about me, like what about males? And so we thought, well, let's talk about this issue. So there is a S there is a um, SLP uncensored group on Facebook. And yesterday I posted something basically saying, hey, we're going to have this podcast. What do you guys think about this topic about SLP's field being 96% female. And um, many of the themes that came up were, who cares? We don't need to work hard to get more men in the field because they fare better. And that tends to be cisgendered males. They have the glass escalator effect, which is basically referring to the way men, namely heterosexual cisgendered men, are on a fast track to advanced positions in predominantly female 
fields and uh, they're not barred from entering. So if they're not coming in and those who are here are doing really well, why do we need to talk about this at all? So uh, that seemed to be one of the bigger topics and I'll talk about some of the others as we go through, but I just wanted to open it up to everybody and uh, have you chime in with whether or not first, do you think it is important to increase male presence in the field of speech language pathology. Who wants to start? Well, um, I'll start. Um, I think it's important for me at least to, to be clear about what, um, what I'm want, the message I'm wanting to get across um, today in, in my presentations at um, the California Speech and Hearing Association Convention for me, um, I found out about this field purely by accident. Um, I was 27 years old. I'd already gotten a degree in something else, um, already had student debt from that degree, and wasn't totally using it. I was working as a personal trainer, and I met a gentleman, an older gentleman, who had suffered a stroke years before I met him. And as I got to know him, he told me more about his rehab. And... I was surprised to hear that he worked with a speech therapist. And so I became more interested and, and read up a little bit about it and thought, oh, wow, this is um, kind of like uh, physical therapy, but with communication and all these other things that I'm really interested in. And I, I think, you know, to this day, I think, well, if I hadn't met him, would I be doing this? So I had to get incredibly lucky to even have this on my radar. And so I started when I got into the uh, graduate program, I looked around and I saw two other men and 33 women, um, which wasn't a huge, it wasn't really a big, a big deal, but you know, I noticed it and I had to wonder why. And so I came to the conclusion that it's essentially a, a pipeline issue. Um, there, I didn't know about it. It was not on my radar. I'd never even, I don't know if my high school had a speech therapist on campus. I never saw them. I don't know who it was. Um, and I imagine a lot of high school students um, are the same way. They have no idea who that person is. They don't know what they do, um, why they do it, who they help, what other places they, you know, speech therapists can work in. Um, and so for me, I want to make it clear that although I do think diversity for many other reasons is great in any field, um, I think if you make young people across the board more aware of an awesome field, naturally that pipeline coming into um, undergraduate and graduate programs will become more diverse and you won't have any sort of suspicion of, oh, are, are these programs letting in more males just for the sake of diversity or um, black people or bilingual um, candidates? There won't be any of that suspicion because there's just more of them applying. There's just more of them in the pipeline. And so that's my biggest thing is I just want people to be aware, uh, more young people to be aware of the field and all that we do so that it's at least on their radar when they're, okay. when they're 15 to 21 years old. Okay. Uh, Rick, did you have a comment? Yeah, I think that's it's it's I think it's interesting. I'd be interested to know from from Dan and, and Ryan on that same scenario what what opened it up i i was very something uh, something very similar to that i was pre-med and but really was majoring in college so i, I it was quickly 
find something that you're going to be able to get a degree in. And my mom was somewhat of my counselor and she, she knew I was interested in the sciences and medical. And she found the voice science course, which was basically our survey, our introduction to this discipline. So that's what put me inside the program. And again, I met two gentlemen, one guy ahead of me, one guy below me, but I never really thought about it. But what made me think of the point you were making, Anthony, is about what we do as a discipline, I think is still very new. And certainly who's telling that story. And I think, um, you know, if it's, you know, I, I, I was looking up the history, I think PT was in the 1800s. And then OT may have 20 years on us, something like that. But I think just in speech language pathology in general, a lot of people don't know what we do. I mean, they, they pretty mm -hmm. much think we're only in the schools or maybe help my R's and my S's with my kids. They don't realize the realm of what we do. So I'm, I'm with you. And I think it's our, it's our duty, I think, to share. And I don't know that it's necessarily to get more males, but I do find that as a kind of a sidecar to what I do on a day-to-day -day basis is, you know, illuminating our careers and what our profession does. Mm -hmm. Ryan? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I think that um, it's more important, at least in my mind and from where I come from, that um, to address this as um, essentially a marketing issue. Um, and, and, you know, I, I came across this field kind of by accident. I was also kind of majoring in college, minoring in music and a few other things and, and kind of had an epiphany that I was frankly not good enough to be a musician. And, and the head of the music department at the University of Florida said, hey, there's this scientist across campus who's, who's taking movies of vocal cords. And, and I, I, literally that day I walked over and one of my mentors, who's still a, a very close friend, Chris Sapienza, kind of took me in. Um, and it didn't matter that she was a woman, I was a man, like, I, I just loved the work. And it took me down a path. And I think that um, we have an obligation to bring in, again, from kind of where I sit in my administrative role, I want to see really, really great scientists entering the field and people who are more scientifically inclined to jump into this huge PhD faculty shortage that we have nationwide. And I think that we can do that if we get people really excited about the work that's being done kind of irrespective. You know, I, 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 I like the science of it. I, I didn't, I, I, I dreaded my public school placement. I dreaded it. I did it, but I dreaded it. Um, and there are a lot of people who aren't willing to put up with that public school placement in order to go be a scientist or, you know, to, to be a Dr. Humbert or, you know, to do this really cool, what I, what, and, you know, um, to do what I think is really stimulating for me professionally and personally. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's, and it's, it would be silly to not, to not acknowledge that being a white male doesn't afford some opportunities. I mean, that's the big elephant in the room, right? Is that, you know, looking at this screen, we're a pretty homogeneous group of white men who clearly just by the sake of being white men have been afforded opportunities that we probably aren't even cognizant of. Um, and, and I think that's okay to, you know, I acknowledge that I don't exploit it. And, and by God, I, I try to pay that forward to everybody I come in contact with, whether they're, they're male or female. Dan? 
I think that your original question was something like, do we need more men in the field? And I think, I think we kind of got away from that a little bit. I thought that was interesting. Thank you, Dan, for bringing us back on track. And, but you know, I've heard some people say sort of like, as long as someone is competent, um, it really doesn't matter, right? You have that on one hand. And so, you know, as a swallow person, uh, who was on the West Coast where OTs did a lot of swallowing and we see that encroachment of OTs in the swallowing world. You know, one argument for that is as long as they're competent, you know, whoever's per- doing um, dysphagia work, right, as long as they're competent, what should it matter? But then, um, you know, you could make that argument with men and women in speech pathology. But then on the other hand, you know, when you have a field where only 4% of the people practicing are one gender, um, what you know, what kind of options are there available for patients? I mean, even when I went and booked a massage the other day, I had the option of a male or female uh, massage therapist. And, you know, if you go on to um, searches for any kind of clinician, you, you have that option. We really don't have much of an option uh, in speech language pathology. And I think that's the other argument. So I would like to point out that I... Uh, it was last night. So on this SLPs uncensored, uncensored, at the time that I finally tabulated all the comments, there were 237 comments. And by the time we got to 230, I noticed most of the comments were about whether or not the professionals need to have more male colleagues. It was more like, we don't need more men, right? And I said, what about the patients? So after all those comments, I said, do you think that patients could benefit from having somebody that they identify with? Um, I mentioned that there are times where I might walk into a person's hospital room and they're partially naked and perhaps that male who I'm then going to say, open your mouth, stick out your tongue, blah, 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 might be like, Ugh, this woman just saw parts of me that I'm not comfortable with. And maybe, maybe that person's performance might vary because it's me versus a male, right? It's possible. So when I made that point, um, there were many people saying that who cares? It's only a preference. Like if a man wants a man, it's a nice thing to have. It's not the same thing as a black person wanting a black person because they don't want to be not given pain medication because people think that black people can't feel pain. Um, Or it's not equivalent to compare men wanting men to trans people wanting trans people. Trans people are an oppressed group and are often uh, treated differently, hostily, if you will, whereas for a man, it's it's a nice to have thing, right? Um, So there is a position out there that, oh my God, this poor white man didn't get a white therapist, boo hoo, as opposed to all of the other things that we could be focusing on Uh, all the other subgroups that are also low in number who actually their health, the supposition is that their health would be dramatically different. Whereas with a male having a male colleague, I mean, you can say the same thing about nursing. Are you suggesting that for years, healthcare for men was horrible because it was so female dominated, but now that we have more males, thank God men are healthier, actually it was the reverse, right? There, we have a whole women's health department because we realized women's health was getting no attention even though there were so many female nurses. So what do you guys think about that? Anybody wanna jump in? Rick. Well, one thing about, I mean, what you're saying, and I, and I get that, and I, you know, who, who knows what some person is going to do in a therapeutic modality whatever it may be, whether it be articulation or some type of an aphasia or some type of neurological issue you're working with, I think versatility leads to that, um, the competence of the clinician. I, 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 there's no doubt that from a preference standpoint, I'm probably not 
top of the line for who's coming in to treat a lot of my patients. I mean, I, I would think that they're they're not sure or they're they're timid. They could be kind of upset with the fact that they're dealing with something in a neurological way that they're not happy with. But from the standpoint of uh, uh, versatility is the key because it's it's my job as a competent therapist to let them know that whatever that outside distraction is, I have to work through that and get them to work along with me. So I think that versatility speaks to that. When you say um, versatility, can I just be clear? Are you saying your ability to work with a wide range of people? Are you talking about cultural yes. competence? All of it. I mean, I think that's, the, that's, that's, we're charged with that. Um, I can't go treat the, the country guy in, in Texas. I might have a guy from a rural area can't treat him necessarily the same way as I could treat somebody who moved down here from New York and maybe they have a different sense of there's just some different uh, uh, versatility traits I think that you have to bring to your session to overcome that so mm -hmm. that that might be an initial impression of I wish I had male wish I had female but once you get through that and you recognize the competence of what you're bringing into the session that we should be able to break through that but I agree with Dan too. I mean, I think they're, they're, the preference is, is ideal, but it's certainly not available necessarily in most of our, our field. Anthony? Yeah, so I think if we were talking about, you know, males being 20% um, represented of, of the, you know, population of speech therapists in the United States, I don't know that we would be having this meeting. I don't know if you'd be doing this podcast, but we're 4%, which means you have to look really, really hard sometimes to find a guy or a, uh, you know, it's not much better for bilingual therapists. Mm. It's something like 7% or it's, it's some crazy number. And a lot of states don't have one single bilingual um, SLP. And so it's not that we're saying, you know, there needs to be 50 50%, 40%, I mean, if we got to 15 or 20%, again, I don't know that we're even having this, doing this podcast. I think we're like, okay, you know, we're, you can find a male somewhere if you need one, or you can find a bilingual therapist somewhere if you need one. Um, and so, you know, for it, for the people that were concerned, like on, on the Facebook group that you were um, referring to, you know, I don't want them to think that, um, men are you know complaining and want to just take over every single field and and things like that i mean not at all so that's the thing it, sometimes it's just nice to have uh different types of people hanging around so when you're presented with a situation that they might be better suited for you have that option so i hear what you're saying and I hear what you're saying, but here's my question. We are several minutes in and I don't know that we've quite voiced whether or not there is a benefit necessarily to having more males, right? So just to be clear, so far we've said it's nice to have, you know, it's nice to have. Uh, it's like ice is nice to have in water if you're, if you're going for cold drinks. I mean, that's what I'm hearing right now. Like, what is what right. is the benefit? What I mean, I talked about partially naked. Sure. But so what is the thing? What is the thing that 20% would make better? You said if we could get to 15 for crying out loud, then we would. Guys, so Dan, you had a point? Or, and oh, sorry, Ryan was next and then Dan, sorry. No, I, I think that, you know, I think that the it would be a self-fulfilling uh, cycle at that point. And I think that's where the value is, is that if more males had positive... More, 
more positive role models in the field that they might seek out this as an opportunity. And so I don't know that it necessarily shifts the quality of therapeutic services that, that are offered across the span of the profession. Um, but I think that, you know, we, we ultimately, we got into this field because we enjoyed, we sought to help people. And whether we can create improved connections with that, you know, 12 year old kid, you know, from my perspective, a 12 year old male um, and have an increased therapeutic efficacy with a 12 year old boy um, to both improve his outcomes, but also, again, kind of my selfish kind of administrator hat being put on it. it, it, He not only has a, a, a stronger connection that leads to an improved therapeutic efficacy, but then also leads to having a really positive experience with the field that could potentially lead to his involvement to make the field better for future generations. And that, right. that sounds really like rosy and like that's total administrator speak. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the point of my career I'm in right now. But I think fundamentally that's the issue, right? Is that we seek to make connections. Yeah. And you know, uh, Dan, sorry, Dan, we're going to come to you, but I just want to point out you, Ryan, maybe you, maybe you just hit it on the head here, which is a lot of times people talk about education being very female dominated and, and there are half as many, there are half boys and half girls. And it's nice for a boy to have a male teacher sometimes because there are issues, especially at, a, at you know, maybe puberty and those kinds of things. It's nice to have that. So I could totally understand how, especially in the education setting, that might be pretty important. Dan, and then Leash, you've been very quiet. Dan, what's up? George, so just to kind of underscore Ryan's point, There was a study in 2013 that found that the majority of clients in both adult and pediatric uh, populations in speech pathology were were male, right? And so in that study, they questioned, can such a workforce adequately motivate and relate to teenage boys who are often embarrassed to admit to having difficulties and who arguably benefit from male role models, right? And so that's certainly something to think about. And then thinking about um, increasing the number of men in the field, we know that um, many speech pathologists who, or many grad students, chose uh, communication sciences and disorders as their major because of their exposure to speech therapy as children, right? So if you have um, all female speech pathologists um, treating um, males and females, you are probably going to have more females interested in speech pathology, and then it becomes cyclical. Leash. So I guess I'll throw something out there that takes a little bit of a different angle, but um, do you think that there is something to say about the fact that we have a very uh, female dominated field and as a result of that, we are less respected? So my thought process on this is I read an interesting article about how fields like nursing, teaching, social work, things like that, that are all very heavily female dominated. They're all fields that are underpaid, they're underrespected, and they're also mostly female, right? And the the take on the article, and I bring this up as just kind of like a, a thought exercise, is one complaint I hear from a lot of speech pathologists is that we're underrespected that we're underpaid, that we don't get the credibility that is needed. And would that change if our field was more male um, 
female balance. So like mm-hmm. one of the examples that they gave was that, you know, back in the 1800s, teaching was pretty much a male dominated profession. It was very highly respected. It was very well paid. And then as females began to take on some of these jobs, it very quickly changed so that that perception of that profession was altered. And then I'm not saying that that's right, but I'm saying we live in a society that tends to value masculinity over femininity. And that's just kind of where we're at right now. And I wonder how the perception of our field would would change and if it would strengthen our field if we had more representation from males in speech pathology. What do you guys think about that? So I'm just going to um, say that thank you for that. You've segued me to actually the next point, which is a lot of people have been commenting that more males might mean more money and more respect. Um, And in fact, even if you go into medicine, the areas of medicine like pediatrics and geriatrics where there are more females, they get paid far less than surgery and neurosurgery where there are more males. Now, you could argue that they do different things, but it's the same idea. I would argue that my teachers did amazing things for me more so than the civil engineering guy who maybe I don't know, who makes five times as much as she may have made. But at the end of the day, that the stats hold up that female dominated fields often have less respect and have salaries that are lower. So uh, what do you guys, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Dan, did you... Want to start? And then Rick? Yeah. I would argue that speech pathologists don't do a good job of um, sharing what they do, right? I mean, if you are in a hospital, the majority of people knows what a nurse does. They, they, know, they know what a physical therapist does. Speech pathologists um, go into patients' rooms and, you know, we talk about this with swallowing all the time. You know, they, they think we do some voodoo, we have x-ray vision and we recommend a diet. That's, that's the extent of the knowledge of the average medical student resident and attending in a hospital. So I'm not sure if that's because, um, we are a female dominated profession or just in general as a whole, our profession doesn't do a good job of advertising or educating, um, but isn't that maybe because could it be because it's uh, agentic qualities, which is self-promotion, are associated with men and communal qualities, which are about the team and just getting the job done and not self-promotion, tend to be affiliated with women? Could it be the fact that there is less promotion because there are more women? Because studies also suggest that women don't ask, women don't promote themselves. And if we're 95, 96% women, and that tends to be something that women do, then maybe it's sort of that cyclical thing that you guys both talked about. Well, and I'll just add to Dan's comment that, you know, to use the analogy of nursing, you said like everybody knows what a nurse does, but in the same realm, nursing is predominantly female and nursing has the same problem where they're always trying to gain the respect that's needed for that profession. So I don't know if you guys remember a couple of years ago, there was that big campaign to have nurses stop saying, I'm just a nurse, right? And what I, when I read about this, I thought it was interesting. They somebody postulated a theory, they said, the problem isn't men, it's society's view on women and women's work. So as a society, we underappreciate care work. And many of the jobs that involve care work, therapy, nursing, are female dominated. And there's ends up being this perception that anyone can do these types of jobs, even though most require master's level education and like really high levels of skill are it's not what our culture necessarily values. So men are pushed into these more respected fields and females end up kind of getting, you know, take this line towards these other types of jobs that are less respected. Now, is it 
the chicken or the egg. I, I don't know, but I would say nursing that's predominantly female has the same, one of the same issues that we have. And it'd be interesting if nursing was female and female, I think it would be very different. Yeah. Ricky's been waiting. uh, Yeah. I don't, you know, we've talked about three, in in my opinion, three different areas of careers, teaching, nursing, and then speech language pathology, just on the medical side, even, even all of our discipline, which I would include at least as we started as part of the teaching realm. Um, and I, I think it's totally underappreciated, all three of those, whether it's men or women dominated. Um, I think, uh, you know, I, I, as a whole, I don't know that, I mean, and I guess that the, the stats would show that, that, you know, from the pay and from the value, and I think that's an important part. Um, I, I think all of us as a discipline would argue we're underpaid and underappreciated and maybe un, maybe misunderstood. I think that's been... Um, I, I think all three of uh, all four of us here have talked about how we need to make sure that we're uh, creating that value within the system and, and, and ASHA and reimbursement and different things like that speaks to our value as a discipline, not necessarily whether whether I'm getting paid the same as Alicia or, or Ianessa or Dan. It's more or less the fact what, what is the reimbursement and how is our methods of value within our careers? And I think nursing, teaching and uh, speech language pathology, I think all of us are underappreciated as a whole, as a general rule. Mm-hmm. Um, Leash, uh, you, that was an interesting question. And unfortunately, I do think there might be some of that, you know, rising tide lift all, lifts all boats kind of thing, unfortunately, um, with speech and more men coming into the field. I, I hate to say it, but I think we've kind of, I think we can all kind of admit that that is likely um, something that would benefit it. But I think speech, speech language pathology is in a unique position because we all know how hard we've worked to be where we are. We all know how um, skilled and talented and, and uh, intelligent we all are. And being that there are still so few men, I think it's, an, it's a unique opportunity in this day and age when so many things are changing um, for women to, you know, just like I think nurses are doing a good job of, you know, they're changing the way they talk about themselves and things like that. Um, I think this is a unique opportunity for, for maybe for women to find ways to, um, do that for speech, because it's going to be a long time before there's any number of men that uh, are really going to be, you know, before we get to that 15, 20% number, that's going to be a while from now. Um, even if we all work our hardest. Yeah. So I just want to say something about that. And I wasn't sure who was just like touching their face or wanted to say something, but okay. Rick did want to say something, but (laughs) let me just say this. There are studies that indicate that women are penalized for being more agentic or being more assertive or aggressive. Mm -hmm. Society, you can say that if women would promote more, that's fine. I have no problem with this, okay? But studies even show that white females are among women far more penalized for not being nice. And they're penalized equally by women. So Leash, you can think of the time that you did that um, implicit bias test about female scientists 
as a training female scientist and how you basically found that you're biased against female scientists when you had to answer quickly regarding your position about whether they're, you know, good or appropriate or competent or not. So women are also heart socialized to believe that a man is the powerful structure of it all. Meanwhile, we might complain that our colleague who's as competent as us, not more competent, often gets revered as the physician in a medical setting, uh, or they keep saying Dr. So-and-so, and and that person has to keep saying, I'm Mm -hmm. not a doctor, I'm not a doctor. I see you guys nodding like, yes, yes, yes. I've never, never been mistaken as a doctor. I'm usually, are you Dr. Humbert's assistant? Alicia, oftentimes when I uh, walk in the room after she sets up, would set up the patient, would have to go overboard like, this is Dr. Humbert. Like it was like Arsenio Hall, woo, 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 woo. Like she's the head honcho. She's the one in charge, you know, ask her. She's the lady here. She's not her assistant. So there's so much more work that just has to get done and all these sort of microaggressions that you, by the time you get to the point where the women are calling you a bitch, you know, uh, you're tired of telling patients so-and-so. It's like, oh, now I got to advocate for the profession. Fuck, I'm tired. You know what I mean? So, you know, yeah. sometimes it's just more work. And the question is, how much do you want to push every day? And sometimes you're like, I'm okay just mm-hmm. being liked today. All right, I have to write my notes because I'm here. I'm, my mind, something <laughs> about bourbon, I guess. But, okay. So one of the things I think that is complicated within our discipline certainly speaking on behalf behalf of a teacher or a nurse is we're so deluded in all the things that we do as our degree. We could do accent reduction. We could do R's and S's in school age kids. We could do uh, neurologically uh, compromised kids in the schools. We could do MR, we could do medical, we could do swallowing, we could do voice. And so, as a whole, I don't know that we're churning out in the proper direction. We've got too many. We had irrigation mm-hmm. units with wells, little wheels on them that would roll. We'd roll them 12 rows before you'd start it back up. And if one of those wheels is not working together, you can imagine you can't just all run to the same degree. You've got some that are rolling a little bit slower. And I think as a discipline, I think that's a little bit of our un- incoordination from um, – from the advocacy side. I feel like you're giving me a sports analogy and I'm like, what's the line of scrimmage right now? Like, I don't know. (laughs) Rick. That was a farming analogy. I mean, sorry, sorry. Oh, Ryan. That was farming. Dan lives in Philadelphia. I live in New York. What the hell are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) It's a circle system. Think of this whole line of water. Also, they can't see you with your 10 arms out pointing to the side. Think of an irrigation pipe. Think of an irrigation pipe. (laughs) Oh my lord! I, I don't even know what that is. It got so Texas in here so fast. Irrigation pipe is right. All right, move on. no. Let's move with on. a wheel the size of your car. I don't know what that is, but I do want I'm to know if there is a comment. It. I do wait. I do want to know if there is a comment about women being penalized for being more assertive and people going, "What's her problem? What's her deal? Why is she so bossy?" Uh, Dan, I actually I actually want to get Alicia's uh, opinion about that because. Uh, Alicia and I have done inpatient most of our clinical careers. And so I think that inpatient is a very unique setting for speech pathologists because we interact with a lot of different um, physicians, right, where we often get pushback. I don't know if being a male in the profession has any significant benefit um, to that 
Um, I can only speak from personal experience. I think that, you know, as a speech pathologist in general, because our, our field is not well respected by a lot of the medical community, I often have similar experiences. I think, Alicia, you tell me what your experience has been. You're saying that you have similar experiences where because you're assertive, you get pushback because not because you're male, but because you're a speech pathologist. Yes. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I do think that I do think that there's something to the fact that we are so because we're female dominated, we get put in a box where we're not as respected. Um, and I think that when we step into a medical facility, we have to um, really be careful about the level of assertiveness, the level of um, just the way that we um, disseminate results of studies, the way that we talk to physicians. Um, so I, I do think that it's a concern. And I, and I do think that it's not necessarily because I'm female, you're male in that situation. But I do think that there's a certain stereotype on speech pathology because we, the field is so female dominated that it just mm. is seen as more, um, you know, like, like elementary education, right? Like most elementary school teachers are female. And I think as it, as a speech pathology field, we get put in that box of like, don't you guys do R's and S's, like they put us in the elementary education box. So you think that Dan mm -hmm. is suffering from being in a female dominated field rather than that he is, that the 4% is going to bring us up because they are males. I think Dan as an individual likely is, um, does suffer being a male because he probably gets, and I'm, I'm not going to speak for you, but I'm going to project and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I'm sure that when you're assertive, you get um, you get complained about for mansplaining and for um, being too harsh and that you're being, you know, some of those like negative male qualities just get pushed on you because you're male, even if you're not acting that way. But Casual that, misandry? <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I will say that that I don't think I've ever been called a bitch by um, you know, a physician, I call you, you know, a behind my all back. The time, Dan. Oh, yeah. Well, that's outside <laughs> yeah, of work, you know, but, um, no, I will say that every hospital I've been at, for example, you know, doing a modified barium swallow and I turn the patient AP and I, you know, do an AP view and we look at the esophagus and I have an attending radiologist arguing with me about why do we need to do that, right? That's, that happens everywhere. But, I say, no, we're going to do it because I'm running the exam and I don't care if you're just pushing the buttons. That's what we need to do right now. I've gotten into arguments with physicians and I usually do, you know, succeed in, in that. Um, but I think that it almost catches physicians off guard because perhaps as a male or maybe it's my personality or maybe both. I do have the ability to, um, you know, be direct and persuasive in those situations. Okay, Ryan, you haven't said anything in a while. What's up? No, no, I think so. You know, maybe I've lived in a utopia or something, but, you know, I think that there's a healthy amount of debate that goes on in the medical environments between disciplines. And people often don't agree. And we as a field have an obligation to educate. And that issue of turning a patient AMP 
shouldn't be viewed as a disagreement. It should be viewed as an opportunity because that's probably a resonant that you now get to have a positive impact on to explain to them potentially with data and references that here's why we're going to do this. And if we don't do this, here's why this is a terrible mistake, you know, and, and maybe that's, maybe that's the problem is that we, we see this, if somebody questions us, we see it as being this kind of attack on us as a human. Whereas, you know, again, I'm at a point in my career where I don't have a problem and whether it's me being male or being old or whatever, but I don't have a problem turning to a resident or an attending and saying no, like, and not getting into a, a fight about it, but just trying to explain with kind of reasonable academic information, the rationale, my rationale for making the decisions mm -hmm. that I'm making. And yeah. I think, you know, and, and again, whether that's- Yeah, maybe just may not know. What if that's better received because I'm male? I don't know. Well, but I think I, that, go ahead, sorry. Go ahead. No, no. I was gonna say, I think it's a, it's a female trait that we do tend to take things more personally. And I think that you're naive if, if you think that that doesn't impact our field, yeah. is that um, men do a better job of making things objective. I mean, I'm, this isn't my opinion. This is, there's definitely studies on this that women have a tendency that when they do receive criticism or when they give criticism, that it's taken more personally. And I think that that is something when you work in a medical field is a, is a disadvantage to our field if that is the norm. And I see this at conferences. I see this in other aspects of our field besides our, our immediate practice area is that when you are in a room in a conference room, that's 90% female you don't have as many people going up to the microphone to ask a tough question to a researcher. It always starts with really nice talk. I thought you did a really great job. It's just that maybe there's this one little tiny thing that I would just comment on. And it's a lot of tiptoeing and capping. They call it. What do I they just call learned it? that. Me capping. Yeah, me capping is putting the flowery <laughs> language around yeah. things. Like I think that maybe you should just consider saying you had like five threats to internal validity. Like just put it out there. You know what I mean? Yeah. And when, I, when I go to conferences, I mean, I'm, I'm in a nice spot right now where I get to go to lots of different types of conferences, not just speech pathology, but for the nature of my work. And when I go to conferences that are 50-50 male-female, which a lot of other fields are, this doesn't exist. It's um, when women go up and ask a tough question, there's not as much of a viewpoint of, oh, well, she's, look at this bitch up at the microphone. But a part of that is because the hardest individuals on other women are women, right? So I think when it's split, I think that it's an advantage to our field in terms of rigor and transparency. Uh -huh. And um, I think it elevates just the dialogue around so our field. So there's two hands. Ryan, are you staying on topic? And Rick, are you going off talk topic? I was staying on. Okay. Go Me ahead too. and reply and then, okay, so let's do Ryan the Rick because you're sort of replying to this. Go ahead. No, I think, Leash, you, you hit the nail on the, on the head that, um, you know, we we have an obligation to, to educate professionally. Um, and I think that if we can remove some of the emotionality out of th these discussions, they become much more effective. And, and again, I am, I am completely acknowledging that that is biologically more simple for people with penises <laughs> than than women. 
Um, but you know, we have this opportunity to to educate and advocate, and and, and mm-hmm. it goes back to the first few minutes of this podcast when we talked about kind of exposing the world to the really amazing stuff that this field does. I mean, this field is has has done so much good for so many people. And it, it goes largely unnoticed by people who aren't listening to this podcast. And, and that's on ASHA kind of globally, but it's also on us locally, you know, mm-hmm. I, and I'm really proud of kind of the institutions I've worked at that, you know, like the neurosurgeons call the speech pathologists to make really critical decisions about discharge, about peg placement, about really important issues for patient care that they're wait you know they're they're the whole treatment plan is on hold waiting for speech to get in there and if you know speech doesn't come within an hour they're calling again and you know that kind of thing has to be really invigorating for the field that we are recognized as experts in what yeah. we do and and for those opportunities where our expertise is called into question let's let's revel in that Let's take yeah. the opportunity mm-hmm. to educate those people so that the next interaction they have about the next patient or when they finish residency and they become an attending or, you know, that they, they have this favorable view of the field and completely understand our value. Yeah, I, I would disagree. So, okay, I, I know that I know that Rick was going to say something, <laughs> but I just wanted to respond to that. I would disagree. I think that they have no idea what we do. I think they just want to know what diet the patient can have. It and depends while, on where you are. Don't you agree, I, Dan? Not every mm-hmm. facility is the same. I would say the majority of facilities are like that. Dan, fix it. I know. And I do. But when you have residents rotating every couple months, you're starting from scratch. Right. And so, you know, as you can, but you have graduate students rotating every year and you you're starting from scratch. Happy July 1st. So, so can I just say then, Rick, it's your your chance. Um, yeah. A couple of things. I know. Sorry, don't talk about irrigation. I see you emailed me some details about irrigation. Seriously, guys, while you guys were talking, he sent me an email oh. about irrigation, so I can know what it is. You didn't okay. hear it. All right. So, really quickly, uh, uh, Ryan, what you're talking, what Ryan and Leash are talking about, are basically stereotype threat. It's the idea that you know that your some demographic that you have is a significant stereotype threat in a circumstance you're going in and sometimes it makes you sort of pull back and be afraid of what the situation is here's what that means so for instance really quickly there's a study where they have asian females who have to say what their demographic is before taking a math test the asian females who had to check that they're asian only did way better than the asian females who only had to check that they're women so because asians are supposed to be good at math they thought about that before and it impacted their performance because women aren't supposed to be good at math. They thought about it before and the argument is that it impacted their performance. So if women are feeling like they everything's a fight and they had to fight for everything that they have to do, like Dan is saying, sometimes they go into a session and if something happens, they're not taking your perspective, Ryan, which is this is an opportunity to educate. It's like this is an op- this is an indication that they don't respect me. So same scenario, different perspective. And yeah. finally, like you said, that we're biologic, you know, biologically, you know, you guys have more testosterone and as and you've also been socialized to not want wine as much, if you will, right? And so uh, I will not forget, I went to the, you know, I did a power move at a faculty meeting. And afterward, I left and this male colleague goes to me, do you have a dick? No lie, because I mean, I like, 
threw down the gauntlet in this faculty meeting. And they were like, he was like, do you have a dick? Like suddenly I was like in the reins of men for some reason. Anyway. Mm-hmm. When Rick, they asked I, you that, were you, aff- were you flattered or offended? Oh, I'm always flattered if somebody thinks I have a dick. Are you kidding me? So it's interesting though, right? Ryan's spot on. <laughs> and I think what he's talking about is a couple of things. It's it's back to the versatility, but it's also our communication capabilities. And that comes with experience. And Ianessa and Alicia are leading the way in where our clinicians need to be. And I'm only speaking now in the medical communities. There are a lot of people that don't have the experience and you can't jump out there and take advantage of that meeting. You didn't do that your first year. You did that when you had the confidence and the the communication capability and the ability and the experience to step up there and say, no, 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 this is how it's going to be. But at the same time, I think to your point of having a penis, I'll call it a penis, whatever. I think there's a method to that. And I think that if, if the radiologist, I think it was Dan's example of, hey, we need to put them in AP, and they're going, no, 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 we're done. I've already – the method of you educating them, to Ryan's point, I think that's spot on. Take that as an opportunity. And I think if our discipline starts to do that, all of the allied health community starts to appreciate what it is that we do. And one thing before we get too far off, and Alicia hit on it a second ago, about when you have that pushback or when you need to push back, if in our discipline, if we're only 4% or 6%, whatever it was, how about with you guys and managers, when you guys push back and it's a female, isn't there some conflict there as far as further oppression or suppression of your capabilities because you were bitchy when you came at me with that issue? I just wanted to know your experience in dealing with women bosses, if that's been something that you've dealt with. So just to be clear, Rick, you're saying are some men in certain moments sort of displaying this idea that a woman who is forward and assertive is a bitch, even though, you know, we all we all do it where we think we're, you know, are above sexism, et cetera, et cetera. And then we have that moment. We're like, whoa, that's a bitch right there. So you're suggesting, has it ever happened to you? And how did you deal with it? Well, yeah, but I'm saying regardless whether it's woman or man, I I could have a bad day. And if I'm going to come at somebody, I mean, that's not going to come off well. And we should have been looking at that to Ryan's point as an education opportunity, as opposed to no, you're not Mm going to push on me today because it's me and it's my world. And, you know, then it's not, that's not communication. And that's our ultimate goal is to make good communication here. Right. Right. So I'm not trying to suggest that that happens, but I wanted to know from y'all's perspective, from Mm -hmm. girls who have a female uh, boss, I mean, that that doesn't jive necessarily either as far as, moving up the chain if you're bitchy i guess or what i think that term came out yeah yeah anthony did you want to jump in on that or yeah i mean i just you know it may take a while but i think that um there there is a difference between coming at someone and being adversarial argumentative and things like that of course we shouldn't do that regardless of you know male female that's not going to help us in our everyday professional careers, whether we're working at a school or a hospital, that helps nobody. Um, It doesn't instill trust, you know, coming from either side. But I think that across the board for speech therapists in any setting, and then also for women, uh, if we also see it as somewhat of a, um, a female problem too, 
is that I think we need to, as SLPs, normalize, you know, confident communication to other professionals. And again, it may take a while, but if we all commit to that across the board, if every, if the millions of people that listen to your podcast, um, <laughs> you know, commit to that, right? If we all commit to that and, 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 you know, maybe that changes and maybe the perception of when you are assertive or when you do ask a, a challenging question to a male researcher at a conference or whatever it may be, maybe eventually that's, that woman stops getting viewed as a bitch or um, as someone who, damn, you know, she got a penis or what, right? Maybe that stops becoming so much of a male characteristic right. and, it's, and it's normalized across just confident professional, competent people. Right. And so, so I think I, that's what we all need to work towards. Yeah. yeah. Confidence and so, competence. So Ryan, yeah, confidence and competence. So Ryan, I see your hand there. I just want to say very clearly, you may or may not have had to experience this. Maybe this is a privilege thing. I've spent a lot of time letting people know what I will and will not tolerate from them all the time. It is almost, it flows out of me like, it, like carbon dioxide. I fully I have a part of me that's waiting for them to fulfill the stereotype. If they do, I'm like, oh, you pass. Look at you. But if they don't, I'm like, here we go. Let me just explain to you who I am and why you're not going to disrespect me. I would like to think mm -hmm. that my being competent would be an competent, highly competent would be enough. But sometimes it's just not. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's, oh, my God, I can't believe. Wait, you went to Howard University. You seem so smart. I mean, the things that people say when they think they're complimenting you half the time, you're like, Help me understand why that would be a compliment. You I'm might get to the thread at some point with some of those guys too. Well, it, oh, there's no question. There's yeah. no question that they're like, well, Bless didn't you. you didn't shouldn't you be glad to be here? Shouldn't you be glad to be in this environment? Didn't you come from the ghetto? You know, there's this assumption that <laughs> I had to get all these scholarships and all this special stuff to get here. And so you should just be glad to be here. So don't don't come at me mm -hmm. like that. And so I often have to let them know, you don't actually get to do that. I have zero problem doing it. I, I always feel like there's almost like if I don't get to do it one month, I'm like, well, this has been an easy month. What the <laughs> fuck, right? So I have zero problem with it. And I always feel like I'm not taking on your stuff. That's your stuff. I don't own that. I refuse to take it on. But this is my disposition. I basically came out the womb this way. But the point is that some women have been socialized to be nice in such a way that it is mm -hmm. painful. So many people yeah. who's, I wish I could do that like you. You just are so confident. And it's really a lot of work for certain women. Ryan. Yeah, so it, uh, a great point, Ianessa, and, and you know this is why I, I so enjoy spending time with you. Um, it, but you know, one of the issues that we haven't discussed that I, I think plays into this, and it's something that you and I have discussed privately, is that the quality of graduate training mm -hmm. is so disparate, mm -hmm. um, and and we run into this problem of male or female, it doesn't matter, but clinicians oh. being so poorly trained to handle both clinical, but also interpersonal, you know, these professional interpersonal re, uh, um, interactions. And, and, and I, I don't know the data on male, female or, or whatever, but I think this is really a pervasive, pervasive issue in the field that ENS and I have talked about at length um, that, you know, it, I'm tired of running into clinicians that are doing things 
without having a really thorough understanding of the rationale for why they're doing things. And they, I, you know, people who, clinicians who are fundamentally incapable of providing that educational moment um, that, mm -hmm. that set us as a field mm -hmm. back profoundly. And this is irrespective, male, female, cis, trans, whatever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that we need a global standard in terms of baseline knowledge. And once that's in place, these other things kind of fall in line. That's such an excellent point. It's kind of what Rick was saying earlier, which is yeah. the the maybe the the uh, the rising tide that could lift all boats is highly competent people, which means they all are confident, right? They, you know what I think about? I think I was thinking, what group of what field or what specialty do women have on lock? And the first thing I thought of was gymnastics. Yes, there are male gymnastics, but do you know any of their names? Hell no. Mm -hmm. Women gymnastics, they are it. Now, they're doing the same moves. They're not physically as strong as the guys necessarily, but something about female gymnastics is it. And it's because they are so adept at what they're doing. Do you think they have time to get caught up in that the fact that they're female? No, I think similar to, to gymnastics, we can we can happen to be a field that goes into perpetuity as somewhere around 90% female ish, and still rock the world because we have changed the graduate system as a rising tide as opposed uh -huh. to well, if we just had more males, I will tell you 100% hands down, there has never been a time, and I have been on several admissions committees, where a male, one male faculty member will come in and say, look at the list of people we say we're going to admit. Well, they're all female names. Should we add space for a male? And we'll go, they were all at the bottom. They just they just happened to be all at the bottom. Not because they're mm -hmm. bad, but just because they happen to be. Well, should we pull one up? And every faculty meeting, they pull one up. However... In two years after graduating, they okay. will be emailing me talking about how they are now the lead SLP and so and so. And can you help me with blah, blah, blah? I have so many of these emails. Continue to help me. <laughs> I have so many of these emails. I'm like, but I do wonder mm -hmm. whether or not your point, Ryan, is valid, which is it shouldn't be about necessarily male or female it sh or anything in between. It should 100% be about competence because competence leads to confidence, which raises the game for everybody. Yeah. I mean, it, it goes back to Dan's question about scheduling a massage. <laughs> you know, you, you said you had the choice of a male or a female, but if you knew one of them was far superior, but it wasn't your preference for a masseuse, who would you pick? You'd always pick the far superior practitioner, always. Yeah. yeah. And so mm -hmm. this, this discussion becomes irrelevant mm -hmm. if we raise the level of baseline clinical uh, uh, aptitude. Mm -hmm. Uh, we don't have this discussion, I don't think. Yeah. So and, that, really and that comes back me. to... Anthony, Sorry, the go ahead. leash. Go ahead, Anthony. Uh, well, I was just going to say, and that all comes back to, you know, what uh, we're doing and what Ash is doing to attract people to the field um, so that we can have, you know, so that what we're choosing from, the the group of people that we're choosing from, we can take the best of the best every single time and not worry about, I mean, I think we all can agree that, you know, there were a few people in there that we were just like, dude, good luck. But like, I, I don't know, man, like, I, I don't want to yeah. be anywhere near your school district or your hospital or whatever. 
Um, so, you know, and that's a shame, but so if Asha and, and, and us, um, if we do all the things that we can do, um, to, to lift that, to lift that, um, tide, then we won't have to keep having this conversation. And, you know, like I said earlier, we'll, if more young people are aware of it, we'll be naturally more diverse. Just, it'll just happen. We won't have to feel like we have to admit a guy and, and a bilingual student or whatever it is. Um, may I suggest so me, what the bottleneck is? Goal. May I suggest what the bottleneck is in your suggestion? Then, Leisha, you're next. The, every single time we have somebody who's failing, they stay because the department doesn't feel good about kicking somebody out. And I'm mm-hmm. telling you, I have been in this field long enough to recognize it's often women who are like, well, mm-hmm. I mean, I just hate to think they've spent all this money. They don't deserve the same yeah. degree I have. They do not deserve right. to put the same letters behind their name that I have put behind my name because I'm putting in tons more work for every one of like person like that that you admit. Can we please have this conversation? I do not. I know so many people who are in speech pathology because they were at the bottom of their class in med school. Now, they tend to be Ooh. the higher students because they had a higher standard or biomedical engineering and they're in speech pathology. Mm-hmm. So the lowest of their crop is pretty decent in our crop. But the lowest of our crop, what's next? Basket weaving 101. Like, is that they're going to be the highest in the basket weaving 101 department? I mean, why can't we just say, I would rather have fewer admit at people, students admitted who are stellar who can lead us and practice at the top of their game than to have a class of 30 something and three of them cry every time you ask them to justify why they said X, Y, Z in the class. I I don't understand why that's a problem. I don't understand why we wouldn't want to raise our game leash. Yeah. What do you call a doctor who graduates last in his class? Irrigation. Doctor. (laughs) (laughs) So I was really, Ryan had that. (laughs) So, I was really struck, Ryan, when you said that um, it just this comment has really stuck with me when you talked about when you went into speech pathology and how you were dreading your elementary school um, placement, which I was too. But it just got me thinking, you know, in terms of solutions, don't you feel that if we had a medical track in speech pathology that like profound, there would be more men? And I, I understand, yep. like, I, no I had never thought that the idea, you know, in grad school, we have to take all these bullshit classes that, you know, you don't want to learn about Brown's morphine, whatever those things are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> already forgot it. You just finished. Grammatical morphine. You know, <laughs> youngest work... person here already forgot Anthony, it. step up. <laughs> you know, to go work with pediatrics. Brown's, Brown's grammatical morphine. Oh, okay. Go got ahead. it back check um you know for i understand that um working with pediatrics and working with elementary education in these areas is a female dominated field it's it's a little bit maternal i think and that's that's Mm -hmm. biological i think that that's normal i don't think that that's something that would surprise anybody and i had never thought of that as something that would be kind of maybe a deterrent to somebody going into our field rightfully so um, it is. Yeah. Like, I don't want to spend half of my education and my money learning about something I have no interest in learning about. It's not my interest. And I just wonder, you know, it's mm-hmm. kind of like having two tracks with two birds, one stone. One, we would have way more men in the field, I believe. And two, it would raise the standard of 
the education that is needed in our field to be more medically based. Um, so I just think that it would be interesting. I mean, think about for a second, really truly think about what if in five years, an influx of men over the next five years came into gra graduate programs and they were the majority and five, 10 years from now, our field was 50, 50. Our field would be so different. It would be so mm -hmm. different if it was 50, 50 male, female. I really believe that for the better. Would it be different, better or different, worse or just better. different? Neutral? I think it would be so much better. How so? How so? Mm -hmm. um, well, I think it's, it's like from the bottom up, right? I think that it has nothing to do with, um, or not as much to do with um, the ability to treat a patient, right? Like those types of factors, I think it, it are not necessarily male, female. I think the, um, from a, from a, like a um, professional standpoint, all of the things that we talked about, about respect and um, at conferences you know, being able public to relations, right? The whole public everything. relations, yeah. being able to communicate science, being able to um, take the personal aspects out of. Um, but don't you think women are trainable? Can't we give the chick sticks? Like, what's the problem? I've given several chick sticks. I'm not lying. <laughs> you need to Can realize they... that peer review in science means critique. 50% plus of everything you get from a paper, from a grant is going to be, this is what you fucked up on. Yeah. This yeah. little thing was great. But these are all the things that you're horrible at. This is science. It's the mm -hmm. way it is. Yeah. And if I mean, clinicians that's, that's can't take that job. information, just give, I mean, the thing is, everybody needs to be able to take this in. Right so who, now, we need to, takes we, hold on, hold on. We need to in work with opinion. the people we have now. We're not getting to 50%. Sure. Why can't people stop crying because they didn't get the feedback? I don't understand. So but who takes that academic... feedback better, Ianessa, from your, what you were just saying? Who takes that better? 100% men take it better. And that's to Alicia's 100. point. No, but my point is that's because I expect initially that's going to be the case. The continuation of me saying, look, I understand that you feel this way, but in order to so-and-so, this is what's needed. And I'm very good at saying, perhaps your skill set isn't suited to what science demands. That's kneecapping. And if that's, at, no, perhaps. no, there's no, no. Let me tell you, that's a cry fest when I say that. It's a cry fest. I wish it was kneecapping. That's like the most flowery I can get. Okay. Seriously. And if you, if you say this is this, the job requires this, you either figure it out and move forward in this way, or you perhaps find something else. Suddenly they find mm -hmm. it. Suddenly they find it. But if we keep saying, oh, she feels this way and coddling, then it's not going to help. But people don't want to be the bad guy. And I don't think it's being the bad guy. I think it's being the person to say, this is what you're going to deal with on the job. You are going to have a mm -hmm. physician who doesn't want to do AP. For the sake of right. the patient, it is your duty to ensure mm -hmm. that the patient gets what they need. It's not about you. It's about the patient. Yep. And, and I keep be a instilling that, that be over a and over need. and over again. Right. Yep. Yep. I mean... And we're dipping into something that's not even male, female, right? right. This is something of right. like a society yeah. change. Um, you know, I'm a huge, I have a lot of opinions about the like coddling of the American mind that where it, it's, it's hurting our, our rigor and education and speech pathology programs where we're not allowed to be tough as educators. And it, especially not allowed to be mm -hmm. tough if you're a female, 
because you are going to get the worst. Um, you're going to get the worst student uh, teacher evaluations that you've oh, ever yeah. seen in your life. Uh-huh. And, you know, and then administration uh, oftentimes is wanting us to coddle students and to cater to students and to basically, mm-hmm. you know, not tell yeah. them these things that we're saying here. You're like, I, I hear you. I mean, you said these things to me. Like, I remember you telling me like, you better fucking man up day one. I was like, okay, here we yeah. go. We were in Hopkins School of Medicine. I was surrounded by yeah. uh, physicians of all genders and races who just were happy to be there in physical medicine and rehab. But you cannot and say that to your speech pathology students. No, no, there's no you way. And that was part of that. my issue. I went from a school of medicine where there was across the board people just so happy to be a resident at Hopkins to UF where there were like people crying because they had a free ride and I didn't and when they said the wrong cranial nerve I corrected them mm-hmm. if that's where if that's literally your yeah. life your worldview then you don't belong here I'm sorry mm-hmm. I don't want I yeah. always say do I want you making decisions about my dad's airway nope yeah so that's an across the board thing is is in general and, and I'm I'm working at a high school where I just learned this year at the beginning of the year that that my high school does not give D's I know, or something like that. It's like, they'll bump, you know, it's either an F or a, or a C. And so it's just strange. And so I, I go, well, if they're doing that, they're probably also giving a lot of kids who should get a B and A. And so that bothers the shit out of me because, um, you know, it just does. I mean, I don't have to explain why, but that's just, that's not okay. And that's going to have a, a latent effect that we're going to pay for. We're already paying for it, yeah. but we're going to pay for it for decades and decades to come. And like you said, if our parents are, are sick and we've got someone providing services for them, like are, how confident are we, you know, you and the others in the medical field, you're going to want to go in there and find a way to treat them yourselves because you're not going to trust anybody. Right. And that's not okay. And Ryan, I see you there, but I was also going to say at the University of Iowa, it's not pass fail anymore. It's pass not pass because people didn't like to see fail. Mm. Oh my fucking god! Are you? Oh my god! Right yeah, that's, that's pass rough. not pass. Yeah, that's and not... I had to ask somebody, "What is NP not pass?" I'm like, "You mean fail? Oh, we're not. We don't say that here. What the hell?" Mm. <laughs> As an adult, I mean, come on, like we're that's, adults. That's too much. Yeah. So uh, you know. My, my first boss used to say, come to me with solutions, not problems. And, you know, we can sit around over a cup of bourbon and, and discuss all the problems. I, I'd like to propose a, a single solution. Okay. And that is increase the difficulty to pass the praxis. You know, the new- But that's too late. They've already gone through the program. Yeah, but- We don't want to have a program. But we would- we would restructure programs. We teach the test, right? And so it's really fucking uh, hard to pass the praxis. Like I get boards, like in medical school. Like yeah. boards are hard to pass. Exactly. Yeah. The bar exam to practice law. Uh, I mean, there's certain, it varies from state to state and certain states are much, much more prestigious to pass yes. the bar. Yeah. That's interesting. So, That's, That's interesting. a great idea. All of these programs, I mean, bad programs they all publish their practice practice success rate and it's always a hundred percent ninety percent yeah that's a bad thing Mm -hmm. that just speaks to the level 
that we're teaching. Not all are that way. Yeah. That's right. However, Asha will say, okay, I want to say, Ryan, you're on your second solution. That's why we love you. First was, oh, look at the finger I'm using. Uh, first was competence. And the second was praxis, right? Yes. So I will say Asha will not do that because they don't want the complaining. And two, they want the money. Yeah, but they, yes. they'd get more money because people would have to take it over and over again. Like <laughs> and you they would add prestige. Yeah. Secondary yeah. revenue stream by doing practice practice courses by you know teaching to the test. There could be all kinds of revenue opportunities if we dramatically mm -hmm. increase the rigor that was required to pass pass the praxis. But I mean, this is Alicia's point earlier, and I, I I've been a big advocate of this too, as far as a solution goes. Okay, we need to segregate the two levels of speech language pathology. You need a school based and yet all mm -hmm. they do and they, they focus on that and their praxis is on that. Yeah. And the medical is the medical. And yeah. if you look at that damn picture I sent you, Ianessa, you're not sharing with everybody. Okay, everybody will it. understand that mm -hmm. if you've got 18 wheels on each side of your motor yeah. trying to drag them along the freeway, it's very hard to make pro progress. But if you can streamline mm -hmm. that and say, if you're medical, let's go medical and let's focus those guys. I guarantee you, your board certified sure. people are going to have less problems but, with their swallowing I, because they didn't spend time doing the brown morphine. But I think that you can, I think the solution can come earlier. I think that if we made the undergraduate degree rigorous, sure. I think you're not going to, there's too much tuition dollars. Leisha, they would never pay for my salary if they didn't have a hundred undergrad people knowing that only 20% of the, it's okay for undergraduate it's, it's, to be what it is. Yeah. It still comes down to law school. You can come out of history and go exactly, to law school. Yeah. Exactly. It still comes down to the grad program. Yeah. And if we raise the level mm -hmm. of the praxis, we raise the level of education in, gra in graduate school. Yes. Here's why I like the praxis example is because it allows the university to be off the hook because they're like, you don't fucking pass the praxis. Like you don't, you don't go mm. complaining to the dean. You don't go complaining to the department chair. It's yeah. like, <laughs> it's on you. Like and I think that it allows universities to... It, it takes the heat off of them, right? Because the praxis is an independent thing. And let's make that praxis pass rate mean something. Yeah. You know, when you look at the yeah. law school, you know, at the University of Florida, just because a friend of mine just graduated, they publish how many people pass the, mm -hmm. the bar in Florida. And that means something. Yep. And it's it, not 100%. Mm -hmm. That's right. Oh, and it shouldn't be. And in yeah. fact, you know, what's interesting is even the grades in law school, you can make an A, but because of this curve situation they have, you end up with a C. It's like the craziest thing. And but it doesn't matter. matter. Right. But a yeah. C doesn't matter because you still have mastery of, of the content. It's irrelevant, right? That's right. Anybody mm -hmm. with experience or being talked about, how many times did it take them to pass the board? That comes up. Yeah. Did you pass it the first time? Did you it took you three times? There's some there's some validity to that exam. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess the question is whether or not um, whether or not you guys think that we the the first problem before we get to Ryan's issue is is what we're doing like Rick said too broad for that to even have 
mm-hmm. any really mastery everything. And I don't think it is. I think that we're wimps. Think about what we have to learn about in two years versus what a physician has to learn about in four years mm-hmm. for just for just the first level of med school. And then they go on to specialize. We don't like I mean, when people go to med school, they drop their life for a minute because they're like, I'm going to med school or law school. I don't really, I'm not going to have a life the way people go to speech pathology. And if they have to do clinic at the end of the day, they're like, oh my God, like I had to do like clinic. And I'm, and I'm like, what, what? And like, come up. It's two years. I think that we don't yeah. have rigorous enough programs, even if the, ma- yeah. even if the praxis is high and I agree, you do need a bar up there, but I think the programs are just low. But I think the praxis Increasing the rigor of the practice would push programs because they, nobody would want to yeah. nobody would want to go to a program that their practice pass rate is twelve percent. Oh yeah, no, no, that's true. <laughs> but but that program, think about the programs, Ryan. Who who makes up the programs? People who work there. I'm going to say that right out. Which is, it's not like you have any fat. It's very few, even at Iowa. I was, you know, it always been in the top 10 for many, many, many years. It doesn't mean that every single area covered has somebody who is at the top of their game there. So the problem is not, we are 350 plus accredited programs. You're not, there's some programs who just are going to have a 12 and they're going to go under it. Asha doesn't want that because they want their money. So what if the faculty can't even pass the praxis? Well, that's going to start off that way because if you're going to elevate it, that's going to happen. You guys are you guys are natural selection level right now, and I need you to come down to like economy. The economy of this all is Darwin's not going to win mm-hmm. here. Money's always going to win. Yeah. And while I agree with you, believe me, I am all about natural selection. Like throw the bums out. Well, That's my that. Like I have that painted in a room somewhere in my house. Throw the bums out, right? <laughs> but um, I also know that money makes the world go round. So Ash is not going to lose money because prestige. It's it's a it's a turning a ship and not a ski boat. Yeah. And re- right now, some yeah. people are listening to this like they're basically rearranging chairs in the deck of the Titanic. What the hell does this have to do with anything? Right. And I get and, that. Right. And we've totally skirted the issue of. of yeah, yeah. Those those payment. damn males have we haven't, completely distracted. We, yeah, them. we still haven't. Yeah. Wait, this is such a white male thing to do. It's not about us. It's about the system. It's systematic. Don't worry, this is <laughs> yeah, all edited we're, out. We're changing I, the narrative. I've kept quiet because I noticed that we were drifting far and far away. We but I, I was going to yeah. say that it is interesting that no matter what conversation I'm in with you, Inessa, and Alicia, we always go back to why is speech pathology always. education so terrible? Always, right? Always. I'm sitting back thinking like, I've heard this, I've had this Every conversation over and time. over and over again. I, but I will say that, Brian, I, I've never heard that idea as um, you know, a I. possible solution. Um, I was just talking about with ENS and Alicia that, you know, they're adding so many more programs. And ENS, I think you said in the beginning of this that, you know, there is a short, or maybe it was Ryan, you know, there's a shortage of, um, you know, competent PhD uh, people in speech pathology right and yet despite that um we have more and more and more programs you know several in a hundred mile radius from you know in philadelphia so i think there are probably more speech pathology master's programs in pennsylvania than there are in california is the need really there why is this happening and then going back to what this topic is does it have anything to do with the fact that our profession is predominantly female i don't know i have a question for every for all the males Okay, guys, seriously, do you think, two questions. One is, when you recognize, I've always wondered this, when you recognize that you're given privilege for a particular reason, 
do you call it out or do you just go with it? So I, I, I will speak in a, in a way where I know that I'm having privilege. Everyone thinks I'm white on the phone. Nobody, nobody ever thinks I'm black on the phone. And then when I show up in person and I recognize that I'm, there are certain circumstances where I know I'm getting over because in person, it's very different than on the phone when they don't realize I'm the same person that they <laughs> treated differently in person or the reverse. They talk to me on the phone. Oh yeah, we're going to do this for you. They see me in person. Like, I'm like, when you're done, lift your jaw, then we can continue. Yes, I happen to be black. Right. So I, I've, I've sort <laughs> of like have my own control group in some circumstances. Right. And I recognize what I'm getting privileged because some people will say, well, you're Canadian. You're not like African Americans. And so you're different. So we're treating you this way. I have heard that directly from white people. Well, you're different from them because mm -hmm. you're Canadian. And I usually have to call it out. So I'm curious if you guys have circumstances where mm -hmm. you recognize you're getting privilege, maybe on the job or just in life. Do you do you experience it and say, hold on? Or do you just go, well, we're all going to get where we're going to get. Normally, privilege has several steps of being avoided or, or provided to you the way I look at it. Yeah, I was very privileged to go to college, but I was not taking advantage of that privilege for my first freshman year, I can tell you. Uh, 1.64 average after two semesters. Yeah, there's a lot of privilege there that I didn't take advantage of, but at the same time, you have to take the next step and the next step. So you know, the, the privilege aspect of it. Yeah. I th there's no question that that's a, a, a capability. And do you, do we call attention to it? Is that what you're asking? I'm trying to figure out what. Yeah. So let's say that somebody thinks that you're the physician and, or and just not, really wants to override right? yeah. somebody else who's yeah. maybe even more competent than you. Do you like say, no, no, no. Like she's, she's the one who knows this. No. Or do you just sort of like go with it? No, no. I, I, I don't stay at Holiday Inn Express. I let them all know <laughs> I'm not the physician in the room. Okay. Um, Ionessa, when I was in grad school. Ooh, I'm just going to say uh, my name is Ionessa. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. That's okay. I just Ianessa. let everybody know. I can't Okay, thank you. Cause mm -hmm. <laughs> thank I was you. so going to jump on um, you, Ionessa, right? if you didn't know. Uh, <laughs> dang. Are... You guys waited this long don't, to tell don't me? Don't worry. We've all been there. What a male thing for uh, you to do. I know. Well, I was just about to talk about why is it a male thing to make sure that someone who says my name properly doesn't get away with it? I'm just kidding, but it is right. Well, because if you're going to let him <laughs> slide, I was going to have to call attention to that. No, no, I'm glad you did. I'm, I'm glad sorry, you said sorry, it too, Anthony. Anthony sorry, Anthony, go for it. I interrupted. Well, so I was just going to say that um, when I was in grad school, you know, I was doing my hospital rotation and yeah, I barely know what I'm doing. You know, I'm just kind of going through the motions and figuring things out. And I go into a room with a seasoned female um, therapist and we're trying to, she's trying to address a family. I want to say they were uh, Arabic or, or something like that. Um, and, and she was trying to address this family. There were a lot of people in the room um, and, and really just trying to give her recommendations to the family and they weren't really listening to her. And she was trying and she was kind of trying to like, uh, elevator voice and it just wasn't happening. They, they were still talking. They were looking at me. Um, and I, I sensed this and, and I'm going to, I did not handle it the right way, you know, looking back, but what I did when I saw her struggling, um, I, I stepped in and I, I got the family's attention and I essentially reiterated what this female speech path had just said. 
and I thought I was doing something good. I thought I was helping her and I thought I was, you know, um, but really what I was doing was just using my male privilege because these, these people were listening to me. They were giving me a preference over her because she was probably um, because she was a woman. Now, after the fact, um, I, I kind of started to think about it and I realized that's not what I should have done. And her and I talked about it and she wasn't upset. She understand, she understood I was trying to help, but what I should have done was maybe get the family's attention and get and and direct them back to her and let them know, you know, if, if I was going to use my male privilege at all, that's how I should have used it is, Hey guys, this is really important. You know, um, Beth has something to say. I don't know if we necessarily answered any questions on this podcast, but we certainly Do we ever. Yeah, <laughs> we certainly, I think, helped to um, raise the discussion about it. And I would encourage people to think about the different um, people they work with, whether it be speech pathologists, physicians, nurses, think about their gender how they got to where they are, are there you know, similarities and differences between them? And think about how we might change as individuals and how we can change as a profession because I think ultimately diversity does benefit the profession and it benefits us as clinicians and most of all it benefits the patients. You know, you, you said, you know, for you to say man up, um, you know, are, am I allowed to say that? You, well, uh, now that Ianessa did, you can. I know. Yeah. I feel like I'm the Ianessa arbiter of what you can say. Thank you so you much. <laughs> um, no, I, you know, I think it's nice to have these discussions, and and ultimately, uh, you know, I'm, I, um, I enjoy my role as a mentor, being a male in this field. And again, I am not naive to the fact that I've been afforded privilege related to me being both white and male. Um, but but this field has been very good for me and, and good to me and my family. And um, I, I take that um, seriously with regard to my role to um, to pay it forward. And so I you know and what's most impressive about everybody on this call is that it seems as though um, they, they all share that similar kind of sentiment that, that we have an obligation to raise the field, to take really good care of patients, and, and most importantly, to take care of each other. Yeah. Um, Leash, I'm gonna give you some final comments, but I just wanna say, uh, you know, I don't I don't like the idea that there are certain people who can say things and certain people who can't. I mean, yes, I said man up, and there are probably mm -hmm. a bunch of people who are like, why not ovary up? Why aren't we ovarying up? Like, whatever. Mm -hmm. Like, you get the point. Like, there are some things that men just fucking do better. There are some things that women do better. Why is it a problem to say, in this area, it's better to be, to ascribe to what men do better? And in this area, it's better to ascribe to what women do better. Do we not just want to be better regardless of where we pull from? Why can't we just learn from whatever culture we get it from and be better? Why does it have to be that if it came from a white male, that we need to abandon mm -hmm. it simply because that's the case. I mean, yeah. white male is white males have obviously contributed things in my opinion. The humankind be both. How about that? Leash. Thoughts. <laughs> um, I guess to add <clears throat> a thought that's a little bit different is um I think a lot of what these conversations come down to. So we've done, you know, SLP so white, SLP so female, a lot of this centers around stereotypes 
biases, right? And I think that having these types of conversations allows us to check our own implicit biases, which sometimes we just don't have control over, right? And they exist and to be aware of them is really, really helpful. Um, And I will freely admit that I, coming into this podcast, had to check myself because when we started introducing ourselves and Ianessa told me who was going to be on this podcast and I looked at the names and I was kind of like, oh, who's this? Who's this? And I had never met Ryan before, but I looked him up and said, okay, he's a professor at NYU, like kind of reading a little bit. So coming into the podcast, I was like, oh, obviously I'm going to call him Dr. Bransky. And I don't think I would do that with a female that can have you in previous podcasts. I, I, yeah, I mean, in previous podcasts, like, but it was just the first thought that came to my mind as soon as I logged in was like, oh, okay, I know Rick, I know Dan. Okay, definitely Dr. Bransky, don't forget that. And, you know, just one of those biases that I have to check myself on because I wouldn't, I may not give a woman that same privilege. And I get pissed. This happened to me last week where I was on a seminar. It was myself and another male. We're both doctors. And they referred to him, the guy that I was with, as Dr. Stone and then Alicia. And I was like, fuck, like, really? Like, and now I just did the same thing, you know? Okay, Leash, did you say something? I did, yeah. Yes. I channeled my inner IH. Um, Which is basically the theme of the lab. Did you channel your inner IH? <laughs> I channeled my inner IH, but I did put a little bit of an Alicia flair on it because I kind of made That's a right. joke about it. I called it out, but I made a joke. Yes. You um, have to you have to put it in your own your own sphere. <laughs> but but just kind of going back to my original comment is that, you know, I think we have to check our own biases. And I mean that from a gender perspective, like men maybe need to um, check their biases about women in the field, or maybe women need to check their biases that this guy isn't mansplaining me. He's just a guy who's trying to be a man, be, be he's a just man. being confident and knows what he's talking about or. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And the same with race, yeah. you know, that we're, we right. are constantly having to check our own biases. Um, but I think the fact that, yeah. like, I think the fact that the dialogue helps you to have an internal dialogue, right, about what you're saying, what you're doing, what your biases are. I think in reality that if you don't have these conversations, if you don't talk about it, then you're not going to self-check. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that mm-hmm. we have to be able to have that internal check in order to make any sort of like progress. Um, so I think that that's kind of a takeaway from this. I'm sorry, I'm sick as a dog, you guys. Good Lord. COVID. COVID. My closing remarks are as follows. Leash, you always, Leash is like my ultimate, see, I was going to say wingman, but maybe it's wing woman, <laughs> wing person, which is ultimately, what are we fighting? What What are people fighting for? They're fighting for the option to not be misunderstood. That's all people are asking for. I don't care if you're male or you're female. I don't care if you are trans. I don't care if you're black, you're white, whatever it is. If you're disabled, you want to be treated as an individual, given the opportunity to present yourself as an individual. I thank you so much for being here. Thank you guys so much for hey, joining. It's really nice to meet Anthony, Dr. Bransky, Dan, good to see you again, <laughs> Alicia, Ianessa. Tell me when we're done recording, because I really need to... Oh, no, no. We're, we're staying on for the after hours version of okay, this. Okay. Real. Like, anyone who wants to stay on for the after hours, to I'm going to pause the record button and we're going to stay on. You're welcome to stay. But if you're old and want to go to sleep, namely people with larger beards.
while the conversation went on for at least another hour. We hope that listening to a group of people from various backgrounds and perspectives was a way to initiate the conversation in your circles. We certainly didn't solve any problems in this podcast. Well, maybe Dr. Bransky did. I mean, Ryan. But we certainly hope that this was an impetus to begin the discussion. 